Scripture reading is Matthew 27, 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. It was just over two years or so that Paul spent in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter number 20, at the end of the chapter, Paul is about to sail off away from that town, from the church there that he had grown to love so dearly. And in verse number 36 and following, it says that, he knelt down and prayed with them, and they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. This particular section of scripture gives me some comfort to know that just within a short period of time, you can grow to love and appreciate individuals and form relationships in Christ uh, in just a couple of years. And we've only been here for a few years now, but uh, we have certainly grown to love and appreciate the LaBeouf family. And as you all are aware, most of you are aware, they are, uh, this is their last Sunday here with us as an entire family. And uh, so I think Carrie and Corey will be here next, next Sunday, uh, but with the kids being gone and such, we did want to make mention of that to all of you because we we realize how much they've meant to this congregation over the past couple of decades, really, and more. As you think about how much work that they have done with our youth program, and we want to, as scriptures teach us, uh, to give honor to whom honor is due, and thank them for all that they have done in this, in this congregation, for the tireless hours that they've spent uh, with the youth program and beyond that. And um, though we won't be, if the Lord wills, like, Paul and the Ephesian elders and not seeing their faces any longer. Uh, there perhaps won't be quite as many tears maybe as, as they move on, though we haven't told our kids yet, and they're not here this morning to, to know there may be some tears from them uh, to know that Landon and Tyler and Kaylee are, are moving on. But uh, we, we, will, we do want to say that we're going to miss them and appreciate them, and we wanted to give you a chance to know that, that this is their last Sunday as a family together so that you can give a ch- have a chance to hug their neck and tell them how much you appreciate them. John chapter 3 and verse number 16, perhaps the most well-known Bible verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And as you think about that particular verse, it's plastered all over all kinds of places throughout the world. People write it on their cleats playing football, and it's, it's baited on to, to billboards, and perhaps the most familiar verse to all of humanity. But the question we have before us this morning is, why did Jesus have to die? 
Why did Jesus have to die? I suppose there's a lot of different answers that we could give to that question. We might say, and rightfully so, that it's because the wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6 and verse number 23. We might say, rightfully, because God loves us so much, as was evidenced in John chapter 3 and verse number 16, and we would be right. But we ask the question, why death and why the cross? Why the most painful, torturous type of death that one could experience? Why, why did Jesus have to go to that death? And this morning, it, perhaps you're visiting with us, and as we think about this, maybe you, you've known John chapter 3, verse 16, and, and maybe you've been aware of the fact that Jesus died for you, but you've always been curious and wondering, why did God expect and demand or, or send Jesus to die on our behalf? We often use the word gospel to talk about the fact that Jesus brings good news to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, we find that Paul says that the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. We say that, that word gospel means literally good news, but what is it that's such good news about someone dying? What is it that's such good news about someone going to such a painful and torturous death? Why do we say that that is good news? I invite you to turn with me this morning to Romans chapter number one. We'll be in Romans for the majority of, of our sermon this morning, but turn to Romans chapter one if you're visiting with us. That You can find that on page number 939 in the Pewback Bible in front of you. But in Romans chapter number one, Paul says that as much as is in him, verse number 15, he says, I am ready to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome also. But notice verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I want us to focus in on that verse, on that phrase in verse number 17, for in it is the righteousness of God revealed. The righteousness of God revealed. Let's investigate that idea a little bit more this morning. And I want you to turn over just a couple of pages to chapter number three, and this is gonna be where the majority of our lesson will come from this morning. Chapter three, verses 21 through 26. Now, I realize there's a lot of text on the screen for this particular slide, but I wanted to do this for a reason. So we see all of this section of scripture together because what I want us to notice is as Paul alludes to in verse number 16 that, or verse number 17 of chapter one, that the righteousness of God is what ultimately brings about the death of Christ. I want us to see why. Notice in verse number 21 that we see in this particular section of scripture that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and talking about, but now that is in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God has been manifested. But also notice verse number 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In verse number 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And then in verse number 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be able to be, the, uh, to, might, be uh, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As you think about these four verses here and these four references to the righteousness of God, you might even add into that 
in this section of scripture, the fact that the glory of God is talked about and part of the glory of God certainly being the righteousness of God, we can't help but to conclude that this section of scripture is all about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. What is it about God that concludes in our minds and brings to light in our minds why Jesus had to die on our behalf? And so as we think about the righteousness of God, we'd ask that question, well, what does righteousness mean? If we were to turn to a dictionary and look up the, the specific definition of this particular word, it might say something like this. It's, it's the behavior that is morally justifiable or right. Behavior that is morally justifiable or right. And we might contrast that with evil or, or with, with wickedness or that which is unjust or, or self-centered. And so as you think about righteousness, what is it about God that makes him righteous? And there are so many things that we could, could quantify and, and qualify and, and, and lay out and, and talk about as far as God's righteousness, but I want us to at least boil it down to these three this morning. Number one, I want us to consider that the righteousness of God is, is in, in fact this idea that holiness is his only association. That holiness is his only association. In Isaiah chapter six and verse number three, the prophet Isaiah has this vision and he sees the throne room of heaven and there is this heavenly being that is calling out and praising and worshiping God and three times it is said of God, holy, 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 holy. He is distinct and set apart from that which is sinful or evil and corrupt, that he is different and above that which is wicked and evil. In Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse number 13, we find that God is of purer eyes than to look upon evil. That is to say that God cannot associate with evil. His eyes are of, of too much purity to perceive it, to look upon it. And so as we have qualified in this particular section here, holiness is his only association. God does not associate with that which is evil to the point that in Titus chapter one, in verse number two, it is said that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. God is good all the time. And all the time, the church said, God is good. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. He makes right choices. He has right thoughts. He has right associations. John chapter 17, verse number 17, his word is truth. In totality, as we lay the groundwork for this question that is before us this morning, why did Jesus have to die? We must first determine and realize and understand that God's only association is holiness. He is of pure eyes than to look upon evil. He, he cannot lie. He is holy, holy, holy. But secondly, consider that justice is his desired conclusion. Justice is his desired conclusion. He ensures that, we, as we might put it this way, that justice is served. 
justice is served. In Proverbs chapter 11, in verse number one, the Proverbs writer says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. Talking about maybe in the marketplace, well, we don't use these types of things anymore, right? But you've seen in the uh, logos and, and the illustrations that oftentimes associated with the courtroom in which you have a scale or a balance in which, you know, in order to find out how much uh, weight in rice or whatever type of object it was that you were buying, you would put all that amount of rice here on this side of the scale. And over here on this side of the scale, you would put a, a certain a predetermined weight and you would find out how much rice is on the scale. And so the idea of this false balance being an abomination to the Lord is that God always wants what is right. He wants justice to be served. He goes on to say that a just weight is his delight. In other words, someone might have said, you know, this particular weight weighs 10 pounds when really it only weighed four pounds. But they, the, in the marketplace, they would put that 10 pound weight on there to try to, to insinuate that they had that much rice or whatever it was that they were buying. And so this weight was unjust. It was unrighteous. It was not justice being served. When we think about justice being served, we think about a just judge. And a just judge awards a punishment that is due for the crime. And he does not award punishment to the innocent. At least a just judge does not. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse number 7, when Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, the Lord appears before or, or passes by Moses and he declares himself to Moses. He says this about himself. By the way, pay attention to what God says about himself. He says this, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but notice this, but who by no means clears the guilty. He by no means clears the guilty. God awards punishment to the wrongdoer, but he awards eternal life to the righteous. In Romans chapter four and verse number six, in Romans chapter two and verse number six, Paul says that he will render to each one according to his works. That God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But then in verse number eight, it says, but those who are self-seeking, and those who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And so holiness is God's only association. And part of God's righteousness is the fact that justice is his desired conclusion. But then finally consider this. Love is God's ultimate motivation. Love is God's ultimate motivation. Perhaps you know someone that maybe seemed perfect on the outside and they did all the right things and said all the right words, but inwardly they seemed corrupt and vindictive. Maybe they were hypocritical. Maybe they're just flat out rude. Not so with God. He does what is right. His only association is holiness. His desired conclusion is justice, but he's doing it for the right reasons and he has the right attitude about it. And love is his only and ultimate motivation. His motivations are pure and honest. He does what's right, not only because that's who he is, but because that's what he desires. He longs and loves what is good and right. First John chapter four, verse number eight. He that does not love does not know God. 
for God is love. He is holy, do not be mistaken. He is just, do not misunderstand, but he is love. And part of that unconditional love is 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 4, that God wants everyone to be saved. He wants everyone to be saved. And in turn, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9, Peter says that he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we're maybe reaching this kind of tension, if you will, between God's holiness, at least in the minds of mankind, that God is holy and just, but he's also love and he wants all people to be saved. And so right here in the middle of our section of scripture is this verse, number 23, that we skipped over earlier that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So what is God to do? What is God to do? On the one hand, he is only associating with holiness. He desires that justice is the only conclusion. And so let's camp out there for a second as we think about that. God is holy. He wants those that have sinned to reap what they have sowed. Let's, let's define sin for a second. Sin is that which is antithetical to God. Sin is lawlessness, John writes in 1 John. That is, I would submit to you that, that sin is the very opposite, the, that is which is antithetical to God. May I submit to you this morning that to engage in sin is to dishonor God, to blaspheme him. That is to say evil against him by our deeds and by our actions and even by our words. And so sometimes we might struggle with, well, we said earlier, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. But I don't understand, God. How, how is it that maybe something just as, as innocent as pride or as innocent as dishonesty or, or maybe something that doesn't hurt other people but only maybe hurts myself, such as lust, what, what makes that so punishable in the sense that, that it, its reward is death? I don't understand, God. How, how, how is this just? How is this right? And so let's reframe these for a moment. In our limited human view of things, none of those seem to be damaging to others, maybe. After all, these things are far less consequential than things like maybe rape or murder or theft. But when we look at them in a different light, we see that when we commit sin, that we are disesteeming God that is, we are looking at God and we are looking at sin and we are saying sin is more valuable to us than God. And we become guilty of blasphemy. For example, what does pride do? Well, pride allows me to think that I'm better or more worthy than I really am to the point that I may begin to believe that I'm self-sufficient. And in turn, I'm ultimately blaspheming God. I'm speaking evil against God by believing that I am somehow capable of being self-sufficient. What does dishonesty do? It allows my inner self to, to go against what God has created me for. He created me for good works, and when I do that which is negative or evil or bad, is dishonest, I'm not using my body, my life, for his glory, for what he created me to do for good works. And in turn, I'm ultimately blaspheming him once again. What does lust do? You'd say, well, at least I'm not raping someone. At least I'm not committing some sexual immorality with someone who's not my spouse. 
What's so damning about lust? When you see another human being as merely a means to fulfill yourself, instead of seeing them as an image bearer of God who God created in a marvelous way, ultimately you're seeing that God created an individual as just something that is objectifiable. You're objectifying them. You're looking at them as an object instead of who God created them to be. And then ultimately, again, you are blaspheming against God. And so sin dishonors God. It blasphemes him. And as a result, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says that it separates us from him. Behold, his hand is not short that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you between you and your God. And so we said on the one hand, God is holy and righteous and just. And so every one of us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. How is it that on the one hand, God must maintain his holiness and justice, but at the same time desires that all men and women be saved? And so what is the solution? What is God to do? The answer is found in verse number 26. Look at verse 26 of Romans chapter 3. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, that is Jesus' sacrifice was so that he might be just and the justifier. So that he might be just and the justifier. This verse, every time I read it, blows my mind and tugs at my heart. God, our God, loves us so much that he, in order to maintain his justice, in order to maintain his holiness, had to find a way to at the same time be just and the justifier. And so Jesus' death solves the issue. It solves the issue. God can be both just and the justifier, but the question still remains, well, why, how? That's, that's the answer, the solution. Jesus died in order so that, Jesus, so that God can be both just and the justifier, but how is that the case? And in our text, we find three answers. Three answers. And we're going to look at these in this order. First, we're going to consider the word propitiation. Propitiation. Then we're going to consider the word justified, and then we're going to consider very quickly the word redemption. Consider this with me. Because his righteousness demands punishment of my sin, he became a propitiation for me. I know that word is not a word that we use really any day. What does that word even mean? The word would have been familiar to those in the first century. They would have heard that word and have been reminded of how early uh, early little g gods, gods that were not true gods, but gods that were worshiped by people of the pagan world, offered sacrifices as a propitiation to that God. And that word simply means to appease the wrath of or something that, that covers or takes away the, the vengeance that is due to someone. And so they would have offered these sacrifices to appease the wrath of their gods, sometimes even infant sacrifices. But as you think about this, what's taking place is God is offering himself, Jesus, God in the flesh, as 
a sacrifice that propitiates or appeases his wrath. That is, God's justice, his righteousness demands that punishment be offered for sin because that's what's right. We said earlier, when we look at a judge in the courtroom, we say that judge, if he's just, will punish wrongdoing. And so God, through Jesus Christ, is able to appease his wrath by punishing ultimately himself in Jesus Christ. A penalty has been sentenced and justice has been served, as we said. But then consider this second word, the word justification or justified. Because his righteousness requires righteousness of me in order to be in his presence, because remember, sin separates me from God and when I'm unrighteous, I cannot be in the presence of God. And so Jesus, when he died, he died so that I could be justified or declared righteous. Remember earlier when we talked about the scales and God loving a righteous or a just scale? Where in this case, it might be said that Jesus makes up the difference for us. In order to make the scales balanced, Jesus declares us as righteous by justifying us through his sacrifice. That's why Jesus died on our behalf. So that he could pay our price and then once again declare us as righteous before God. But then finally this morning, the power of Jesus' death is this. Because God's righteousness desired my rescue, his love compelled him to redeem me, to rescue me, verse 24. The word redeem is this idea to buy back or to purchase back. And it would have been, in their minds, the language of the marketplace or even within the slave trade, If you're buying something from someone else, that implies that that someone else owned what you were buying from them. And so when we read that Jesus redeemed us, and when we read verses like Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, and Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, there's this implication that when we became slaves of sin, and we followed after Satan, that Satan owned us. And in order for God to own us once again, He had to purchase us back from him. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul says that the Lord purchased the church with his own blood. And so on the cross, Jesus said these three words, it is finished. It is finished. That word in the original language, some have have, uh, come to believe that it means more literally paid in full. Paid in full. The idea is not only is that our punishment is paid in full, but also that the price of ransom that was upon our head in order to purchase us back from slavery of sin was that God's sacrifice in Jesus Christ paid that ransom. Ultimately, this idea is summed up in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 18, in which Peter says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This morning, this ought to show us the seriousness of sin. That sin separates us from God. That God, in order to save us because he loved us so much, had to pay the price himself to be a just God. And so the price of sin is great. And this morning, there may be sin upon your shoulders. 
to the point that you realize that you are separated from God and you would like to make that right, do that today. Be thankful for the sacrifice that Jesus offered on our behalf. Praise God for what he has done for us. Don't you want to respond to the gospel? All it takes is faith in him, repentance of your past sins, confession that Jesus Christ is the son of God and being buried in a watery grave of baptism, coming into contact with his blood to have your sins washed away. And it's at that point when your sins are washed away that you can be in a right relationship with God again. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning, we ask that you come as together we stand and as we sing.